You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Common Descent Podcast, episode 132. Happy Darwin Day! Happy Darwin Day! Darwin Day is February 12th. It is Charles Darwin's birthday, and for science enthusiasts all around the world, it is an opportunity to celebrate the science of natural history. Our way of celebrating, traditionally, has been to do episodes of the podcast about historical figures in paleontology and evolution. Whichever one falls closest to the day. Yes, this will come out <laughs> about a week before actual Darwin Day, but it's pretty close. We did episodes about Charles Darwin, Alfred Russell Wallace, Mary Anning, Franz Nopcha. Today, our episode is about Mary and Louis Leakey. A twofer. A twofer. This is a double feature. The Leakeys are a famous pair of paleoanthropologists who contributed quite a bit to the study of human evolution and related subjects. So this episode, we're going to talk about who they were, what their contributions were, and what they were like as scientists and people. Now, another part of our tradition for Darwin Day episodes is that often we like to invite on guests to help us discuss our historical people. And today, after the news, after the announcements for our main discussion, I am extremely delighted to say that we will be joined by Meredith Johnson, communications director at the Leakey Foundation, very fitting, and host of Origin Stories, one of my personal favorite podcasts. Yeah, David's been fanning out just a little it's bit. It's been awesome. <laughs> Meredith, we have already recorded the discussion. Meredith was a delight to talk to, and I'm very excited for all of our listeners to hear it as well. It was a lot of fun. But the reason we're doing this particular topic this time is because it was requested. Mm -hmm. As all of our episode topics are, Mary and Louis Leakey were requested as a topic by Eric. Good request, Eric. Thank you very much, and a great suggestion, because, boy, it's, it's a fun discussion and a cool group of people. Yes. No, lots to discuss here. But, of course, before we get into the big stuff, we have some announcements. First and foremost, every episode, we shout out some patrons. We have a Patreon, and our subscriptions on Patreon help to fund everything the podcast does, helps keep us going, and patrons get all sorts of rewards, including behind-the-scenes content. These days, we've been doing live streams just with our patrons and other stuff. One of the rewards, as longtime listeners know, is that patrons of a certain level get thanked right here on the podcast. So welcome to the Patreon, Inti, Janek, Tamanash, Wendy, and Jade. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for your support. As always, thanks to all of our patrons for supporting us. And even if you're not a patron, thank you for listening, but also consider being a patron. You get cool goodies and you get to support our science education efforts. It's a win-win. Everybody, everybody's happy. <laughs> One other major announcement for this episode. We just celebrated five years of the Common Descent podcast. Yep. If you follow us on social media, or really if you've been listening to the podcast recently, you know this. End of January was our five-year anniversary, and we've done a bunch of cool stuff to celebrate. Mainly, we had a five-year anniversary live stream on January 29th on YouTube, where we made some special announcements, chatted with our live audience, and generally just had a good time celebrating the history of the podcast. It was so nice. 
If you missed the live stream, but you'd like to catch it, it is up on YouTube. You can rewatch it. But just so that you know, the things we announced included a bunch of new art that we have commissioned from a couple of our artist friends slash colleagues, including a five-year anniversary logo, which we are now using on our social medias. Some really awesome paleo art posters that our artist friend Rob Soto did. Some significantly sillier but equally awesome (laughs) art by our friend Anna. All of which is available on our Zazzle store. The Zazzle.com Common Descent store. So people can see it, get it on all sorts of merchandise, posters, shirts, mugs, pillows, whatever you want. We've been posting this art on our social media. We showed it off during the live stream. We hope that people like it, and if you do, if you like this kind of art representing the podcast available for people to purchase, the best thing you can do is to buy some. Yes. Buy some, tell your friends to buy some. If these things sell well, if there's a good reception, we'll be able to do more of it. Uh, And we really would like to do more of it, so if you like it, let us know with your words and your wallets, please. Absolutely. It's tons of fun working with the artists to get this stuff made. Uh, but we, yeah, if it, if it's doing well, if you like it, show us. Yes, <laughs> please do. And speaking of art, we've also recently added a fan art page to our blog. Yeah. So our WordPress blog, there is now a fan art page where we are collecting some of our favorite arts that our listeners have sent to us over the years, usually just email or social media, things inspired by our discussions on the podcast. So if you like art, Check that out. And if you are one of the artists in there, uh, check how you're credited and let us know if you want us to change the name or something. Absolutely. (laughs) The other major thing we announced is that we have officially launched a Common Descent Discord server. Yeah. It has been up as of this recording for just a little while and it's going great. People are sharing art and pictures of pets and news links and all sorts of fun, nerdy discussion. Yeah, it's already acting like a Discord, I assume. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I've been led to believe Discord is like. Yeah, it's, it looks like it's functioning the way everyone tells me Discord functions. But people are already using it, and it's really cool. We are looking forward to doing all sorts of cool stuff on Discord. We'll be able to do Q&As, maybe video stuff, maybe even gaming or movie-related stuff. Huge shout-out to your brother, Corey, mm-hmm. and to our two moderators, Rebecca and Dylan, who have been helping us immensely with getting this Discord started and going. It's They've all been amazing, and they're handling it so well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And one other thing we've been doing as a five-year celebration so far is on our social medias and on our Patreon, we have been asking people, listeners of the podcast, to share their stories. Mm -hmm. And we have been getting tons of responses. I've seen a bunch on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon of listeners letting us know sort of how they found the podcast, what they like. We've gotten a lot of people telling us favorite funny moments, which has been (laughs) really cool to read. (laughs) Oh, I have to look at all those. Yep. It's absolutely, it's fantastic. So if you haven't done that yet and you'd like to, please go ahead and you can see all these on Patreon, on Facebook, on Twitter, if you follow us. it's It's been just delightful. It really is pretty amazing. Like, not only that we've done this for five years, but the support that's gotten us here, it floors me every time. And I, it, it's really incredible. Yes, it's, it, 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 absolutely. All that, all that and more. <laughs> well, Ditto. 
With that, I've been playing Pokemon Legends. <laughs> now that you mention it, no, wait, continuing. Stop, wait, we don't have time for that. With that all said, let us move on with the first episode of our sixth year, starting with the news. Every episode before we get to the main discussion, we like to collect some of the news from the science world, paleontology, evolution, earth history, the kinds of things we cover on the podcast. Will, I hope you have a good one. It's the first one post five year anniversary. We've given some dinosaurs to AI. Oh, so the last year of the podcast. (laughs) This is some research about potentially using AI in studying dinosaurs. AI. (laughs) Some artificial intelligence research into can we use that when we're learning about dinosaurs. Very cool. Tell me more. This is research by Tsong Yu Yu et al. in Frontiers in Earth Science. And the article is a press release by Frontiers in phys.org. So, AI, artificial intelligence, or deep learning computers, or neural nets, which are a type of AI that mimics the human brain Mm. in its functioning. Uh, These are all forms of AI. But these kind of learning systems have been used today in multiple image searching technology and procedures, very notably in medical fields. These are often used to detect things like tumors in high-resolution images, CT scans. And we use CT scans, as we've mentioned uh, who knows how many times (laughs) in the news, all the time in paleontology to study the interior of fossils or still embedded fossils without destroying them. Right. It's a non-invasive way to get a detailed look at the structure, both external and internal. So the thought is, if AI can be used to detect things In a medical sense, could it be used to help interpret these CT scans of fossils? Uh So I assume what this means is you get a CT scan of a brain, you know, in the medical term, and then instead of a human having to spot the tumor or spot the thing that's wrong, you've trained a computer program to pick out the characteristic features. Precisely. And that's really the key, that CT scanning of fossils is great, and it can yield amazing images. But what, the, what it's doing is it's recognizing the different densities of material. Mm-hmm. And if your fossil is preserved in stone that is similar density to it, that can become much harder to differentiate. Right. It's going to look the same. It's going to look the same. The bone to stone. And in those cases, a person's going to have to go through basically slide by slide. Because a CT scan basically is imaging the fossil or the brain or the person, whatever it is, but it's doing it in slices, layer by layer, like a 3D printer to create a digital image, just thin slice after thin slice. If you come across a difficult to image fossil, you have to go through slice by slice manually and adjust the pixels and say, no, no, that's not correct. The density confused the scan, so I need to adjust it. And you have to go through and fix it, which is ridiculously time-consuming. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about the new technology and new techniques in paleontology, and often because we are not experts in those techniques, and because that's usually not the point of what we're talking about, we kind of go, yeah, and they CT scanned it, and here are the results they yeah, got. Boom, done. We kind of treat it as though, yeah, you push a button and it CT scans it, and it spits out a beautiful image of a dinosaur skull or whatever. But no, that's not really how it works. <laughs> Often it can be much more time consuming. You still will get an amazing image and you still have avoided damaging the fossil. So you, the benefits are there, 
but it could take days or weeks for a single image if the image is not one that's easily scanned. The hope here is that AI could be applied to those situations to speed that up. AI can process those images in minutes instead of days or weeks. So that's what the researchers tested out in this research. This is a test run of AI on CT scanned fossils. They were using neural nets. I believe it was a specifically a U-net, which is a, a well-known neural net. I don't sure, know anything I, about it. I believe it. It's a Unix system. It's a Unix system. <laughs> they used fossils. Someone out there is a computer person <laughs> who doesn't get that yeah. Jurassic Park reference, and they're really mad at they us just, right their now. Their eye is, is twitching. It is absolutely not a Unix system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They used fossils from the Gobi Desert, Mongolia, protoceratops, uh, two embryonic skulls. Oh, cool. So well-preserved baby protoceratops skulls. Protoceratops, cousin of the ceratopsians, those horned dinosaurs, but this one has no horns. Yep. Episode 87. And they constructed a data set of CT scan slices from more than 10,000 CT scans. So huge data set to test on. And then they ran various forms of the AI neural net, you know, various types and various settings of these systems through it to see how they did and to train them, as you said, to teach them how to interpret fossil from rock and see how well they did. And they found a mixed results, as is to be expected. They did not do as well as people. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. That isn't, for a first run, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. But... There was enough accuracy and processing speed to indicate that it sh could still be useful, even at this stage. Mm -hmm. That it could help reduce time in differentiating. You, you still may have to do a pass over it, but it still may be able to help differentiate. It's not going to finish the job, but you could use this without increasing cost much Okay. in the research. So there still could be use to it, as is expected what we're going to need is more tests, you know, to really confirm it. One thing they did note is that similar tests on similar specimens, even from similar fossil sites, because they wanted to use fossils that were similar situations right. with similar density rock so that they weren't using wildly different scenarios. But they did not find equivalent results with another group when using the best AI. So after running it, they got one really good AI and they used it on others and they did not get comparable results. Gotcha. So it, it might at this point be a case by case. You'd have to train it each time. Yeah. So more tests, probably better AI before this can be sure the solution. But there was promising results. Interesting. So this is the, the very baby steps <laughs> into potentially incorporating neural net AIs into examining fossils. That's a very cool intersection of different techniques, right? Paleontology yes. meeting high tech. We get asked that at the museum all the time. People are like, I see you doing all this paleontology work. How often do you have computer programs help you with stuff? And the answer is not very often because a human eye and experience tends to trump at least modern systems that have been developed. Yes. But what I think is really exciting about this is that there's the obvious, you know, uh, benefit to research that if you want to CT scan your fossils for research, that if this is developed, it can cut down the time and the cost and also the time cost. Mm -hmm. 
and make the research go along more smoothly. But there's potentially even greater benefit here in just data collection. Yes. That if you can, it, you know, I pipe dream, right, though, the end goal, hopefully, <laughs> that if you could just take a bunch of fossils and put them through a, a CT scanner and in a day you've just got dozens or even hundreds of high-quality, well-resolved CT scan specimens. Now you you have all this data that can be made available for research, or you mentioned 3D printing. CT scan data is great for then sending off for 3D printing, which can be used for educational purposes or research purposes. If this takes off, it doesn't only help like an individual research project. If you can CT scan 100 fossils, that's 100 more fossils available potentially in some online repository or even just on somebody's hard drive Yes, that can be a huge boon to paleontology research and education. Well, and another thing they pointed out that could be really actually critical to incorporating AI into these kind of analyses is that not only is it time-consuming and, and laborious to go through all the slices yourself, but you now are introducing your biases Mm -hmm. into interpreting not just how we think it you know might have functioned but the actual shape because you're shaping the image so you if you are interpreting it that well no it wouldn't be that big mm -hmm. so it's it obviously that must be rock you right. know because of my previous assumptions about how these fossils should be shaped you literally could be reshaping the fossil as you shape the image mm -hmm. that's going to be interpreted by research AI could set a bar standard right. of the AI, if it's good enough, could get rid of a lot of that biases and find biases. Yeah. If you have someone who, you know, a previous scan or someone who scans and you're questioning it, you could run it through the AI and the AI could go, no, I found a lot of discrepancies that really it should be shaped like this. Yeah. And that could get rid of, you know, faulty data or even potentially misleading studies. It's important to note when we say biases in science, we don't mean that like somebody has an ulterior motive, <laughs> but anything that influences our interpretation of results. Yeah. And that can be what you expect. It could be previous experience with CT data that doesn't fit this particular fossil, whatever source, uh, basically a source of human error. Exactly. Uh, and I, I stress that because that's going to come up later in the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, my colorblindness would be a biasy. Absolutely. Like if the if the screen I'm looking at shows the rock and isn't showing it distinct enough, I might have more trouble than another person distinguishing the image because I'm colorblind. Because yeah. your eyes are biased. Because my eyes are biased <laughs> against a few colors. <laughs> well, my first bit of news does not have anything to do with dinosaurs or artificial <laughs> intelligence. That is very cool. Boo. But it, it does have to do with a surprising revelation of plant convergence when it comes to producing colored nectar. Oh, I didn't know nectar nectar was colored. Apparently, it is extremely rare. Huh. But it happens. Here's the news. This is research by Rahul Roy et al. in the journal PNAS, and we will link to a press release on phys.org via the University of Minnesota, which is where at least one or two of the researchers are from. Nectar is a sugary liquid produced by plants. So like flowers are often full of nectar. And nectar, it generally functions to attract pollinators. 
It's a little sugary treat to entice things to come on over and drink from it and pick up pollen on the way and then transport that pollen to other plants. Generally speaking, nectar, as you mentioned, is not colored. It's it's not a it does not a colorful substance, but occasionally you do find plants with colorful nectar. According to the press release, there are only 70 known plants that have colored nectar. Wow. Which so extraordinarily rare. This research set out to basically see, all right, well, what's special about this nectar? How do they create this colored nectar and what is it potentially being used for? And what can we potentially use this information for? Because we are very selfish as humans. <laughs> That's fascinating. Could it be marketed? <laughs> well, oh, just you wait. <laughs> so the research team studied the nectar of a plant called Nesocodon mauritianus, which is a plant endemic to Mauritius. Uh, which is an island in the Indian Ocean. Uh, I believe that's where dodos were. I believe Mauritius is the dodo island. I didn't know that. They looked at the nectar and identified an alkaloid, a specific alkaloid, which are a group of plant compounds. This one is responsible for the red color. It's functioning as the pigment in this nectar. It has never been identified before, so they got to name their new substance, their new compound. They called it Nesocodon, after Nesocodon, the plant, they were able to analyze the production process, so how the plant makes this pigment. They were able able to identify three enzymes that are involved in the production and the sort of steps of how the nectar becomes colored. They pointed out that it starts out as an acidic, pale yellow liquid, and then it slowly becomes more alkaline and turns red. Oh, neat. So there is this multi-step process to producing this red nectar. And, very intriguingly, they found the same compound, Nesocodon, in a different plant. A plant called Jaltomata, which also makes red nectar, apparently using the same compound, but notably is not at all related to the first plant and on the other side of the world. Wow. This plant is in South America, The first plant is in the Indian Ocean. So there is convergence upon this same compound to produce red nectar. Huh. I wonder why, like, what is it about red nectar that would, that's so useful to sides of the world? Well, (laughs) so nectar is meant to attract pollinators. So colors, right, fruit is often brightly colored. Flowers are often brightly colored. It's thought that the red nectar is there to attract, to be a visual signal. And they tested this. First, they synthesized some nesocodon, the pigment compound, in the lab, I assume. This is lab-grown. And then they tested it. And the way the press release uh, phrased this was something like they got a hold of some nectar experts. (laughs) Uh, And the experts are geckos. (laughs) So these are geckos that live with the first plant and are thought to be pollinators of the plant. And they provided some synthetic nectar options to the geckos, some with the synthetic pigment and some without, and found that indeed the geckos were more attracted to the colored pigment. So this shows us how these plants are making this compound, that it is convergent, and how evolution has come to this same solution, and the way that they're using it. But beyond that, there is, of course, a human use The press release goes into a bit of detail discussing the fact that red is a hard color to make synthetically. Really? 
So we have all sorts of products, foods and clothing and things where we want to make a red color. But apparently, for certain products, the chemical properties of making a red colorant make it really difficult, or even impossible, it sounds like, for certain products. So understanding how this new type of red, new to us, is made naturally, the researchers hope might lead to a new type of red synthetic coloration that might be useful in more varied situations. Huh. We learned how to make red a new way. Yeah. That's such a weird concept. How odd is that? <laughs> Apparently red is hard. Yeah. I mean, I guess, isn't it red food, like uh, red dyeing number five? Is that the one? Uh, uh, the, the the bad one? Yeah, the one, <laughs> the one that they always talk about. Uh, I think so. It was like a food coloring mm-hmm. dye or something. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess that, it's not too <laughs> shocking, but I didn't, I didn't realize red was so troublesome. Well, the way it sounds in the press release, and I don't have a lot of details, but it sounded like the red, the, the chemical process of making red is incompatible with certain products because of the chemistry of it. That makes sense. That And they didn't give a specific, but I assume that means that, you know, a certain clothing or plastic or something that you're trying to make red might clash with the chemistry of your colorant. So this is a natural red that we can plagiarize off of. Right? Yes. We, we can biomimic it. Mm-hmm. And indeed, both the paper and the press release note that the University of Minnesota has applied for a patent yeah. for the synthesis of nesocodin pigment and its derivatives. Yeah, uh, the incompatibility makes me think of like glues, uh, where most of the time, you know, you just use whatever glue you have and you glue two things together. But when you actually get into making stuff and like modeling or anything like that, certain glues not only shouldn't be used, but cannot work with certain things because like it will eat the thing you're gluing. Oh, yeah. It, It will melt it or it will you know, simply just not glue them together. Like I don't, I've never, I've not dealt with those, but I know there are certain things where it's like, yeah, that glue won't hold those two together because mm-hmm. they're just not going to respond correctly. Well, that comes up in fossil prep. Yep. That there are certain adhesives that for certain fossils just don't work. Yep. For whatever reason, it either doesn't work or it destroys the fossil. Yeah. Because of that chemical properties. Fascinating. New red. Yeah. How about that? I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> Well, my next news also has nothing to do Ah, with the previous news. How consistent we are. This is about a nervous system preserved in a Cambrian arthropod fossil, specifically two of them, two little ones. All right. We don't get a lot of nervous systems in the fossil record. No, and so these are pretty exciting for that purpose. This is research by Javier Ortega Hernandez et al. in Nature Communications. And the article is by Nicoletta Lanise in Live Science. So, as you mentioned, nervous systems are not common, though in very well-preserved invertebrates, uh, we do find them from time to time, especially things like the Burgess Shale, which is where this fossil's from. Oh boy, Burgess Shale, Cambrian aged, over 500 million years old, episode 89. Yes, though this was not recently found there, These two fossils came from the Harvard collections and Smithsonian collections. Oh. So they had been collected quite a time ago. These are museum specimens. Exactly. But they noticed that they actually have preserved nerve tissue. And so that's why they are part of the study. They both seem to be of the same species. These are Molisonia, Symmetrica. They're very tiny. 
each smaller than an aspirin pill, the article <laughs> described them as. Uh, they are about half an inch long. Uh, the Smithsonian is actually only 0.3 inches long. Wow. So we're talking 13 millimeters and 7.5 millimeters. And like one to three or just not quite two to three millimeters wide and tall. Very tiny fossils. Itty, itty bitty. These are arthropods, so, you know, exoskeleton, multi-jointed creatures. Insect or crustacean-like. Yep. They seem, based on the, the similar fossils, to likely be related to Chelicerata, the Chelicerates, which are the group that includes spiders and scorpions and horseshoe crabs today. Yeah, they got a shout-out in episode 123. Yeah. Also in episode 117. This seems to be a very early, potentially stem group. Uh, the research goes into that in more detail a little bit later. But what we're looking at is simple exoskeleton creature. had head shield and a butt shield and segmented body. They said, think of like a pill bug or roly-poly, but long and skinny. Okay. A rolipolipede. Rolipolipede. It's suspected that they had seven pairs of limbs, appendages, Six for walking and two that would have been fangs or mouth parts mm-hmm. based on similar species. They are not preserved on these. Okay. Uh, but the anatomy is similar. So, yeah, something like uh, kind of, you know, centipedus, kind of roly-poly-ish. Yeah. yeah. But the thing that makes them exciting is they have nerve tissue. Uh, and they have a decent amount of the nervous system. The nerves are preserved as as they said inky black splotches yep that's pretty common yep as as these things go yes yeah when (laughs) when we do find them we tend to find them this way because the nerve tissue during fossilization has been preserved as a carbon film Mm -hmm. so it's just carbon left over where the nerves would have been i think we probably talked about that a bunch in episode 121 about brains yep also, maybe 110 about Maison Creek. Also, probably 89 about Burgess Shale. This has come up a bunch. <laughs> yeah, we talk about this stuff a lot, <laughs> evidently. Both preserve evidence of the optic nerves cool. running to, as they said, bulbous eyes, <laughs> lateral eyes, so eyes on the side of their head. They both preserved nerve tissue running from there and to the rest of the body. Uh, though one researcher was quoted in the article saying that that they felt it was a little bit ambiguous that it could have been it could be a little bit better so you know there might be some debate there right we haven't finished training the ai to yes. distinguish between nervous <laughs> tissue and not we've got to make the robot brain before we can study this <laughs> but speaking of brains we don't have for sure preserved now these would not have brains right but they would have ganglions bundles of nerves and in this group, the chelicerates that we know, they have what's called the synganglion, which acts kind of like the brain. They don't definitely have that here, but they do have a bundle, a, a as they said, mess in the middle of the head. <laughs> that is definitely nerve tissue and is where they would expect the synganglion to be. But they can't, it's not resolved enough. They can't get quite enough detail to say, yes, no, it looks like a synganglion. Okay. So there's something in a similar spot that is definitely nervous tissue. Whether it is the synganglion or not is debatable, which is important for resolving where these little critters would be placed in the taxonomic tree. As If it is a synganglion, that's something we expect from chelicerates. If it's not, then that might bring their positioning in that group 
right. more they, into question. They might be cousins of the group something instead like of that. part of the group or something. Exactly. Uh, there are other nerves preserved. Uh, nerves that run along the belly were preserved. They were able to see some specific innervation via the sections, though I did not understand quite the level of detail that they they started getting into <laughs> detailed anatomy, and I don't know chelicerates that well. And that's not what this episode's about. Nope. <laughs> so, some decent nervous tissue from something from the Cambrian, which is awesome. The exact structures are not all for sure, and the relationship of this species to other groups is not positive. So to test that, they try to run it through a phylogenetic study, an evolutionary tree, and constructed two potential evolutionary trees, uh, uh, relationship trees for this group. Both ended up, through the analysis, placing them with triglycerides. So the data currently seems to point that, yes, they are indeed in that group. All right. Or at least that they share a common ancestor with modern triglycerides. So they are either ancestral or close to the ancestor of chelicerates. This could suggest that the more complex, you know, synganglion structure we see came from a more simple form that we're seeing in this creature. You know, so it might give us a glimpse as to what the early nerves of chelicerates looked like. Yeah, potential insights into the nervous systems of the ancestors of spiders, scorpions, etc. Exactly. But, and this is where it gets kind of interesting, where the trees this is where it gets interesting <laughs> so i'm um, thanks for sticking with me through that slog <laughs> yeah everybody wake up this is the good part <laughs> enough about fossilized nerves the way where the two trees differ is where other groups got placed closely related groups like the megachirons which are related to chelicerates and have a similar nervous system to chelicerates but are not in that group. They are a different group. Where they were placed in relation to this new species could have major implications because on one hand, the these creatures could suggest that we have a stepwise evolution of the brain, you know, the chelicerate like brain, and these fossils give us a step in that chain. Right. Or it, phase one of evolution, phase two, phase three, phase four, and yes. so on. Or it could be evidence of independently evolved similar nervous systems. Mm. So we either are going to get that this is a good evidence of the evolution of the chelicerate brain or the chelicerate-like brain, or we have evolu evidence of two different evolutions of a similar nervous system. Either way, fascinating information. Yeah, so where this one ends up falling out is going to end up telling us a lot of how it's useful and what it tells us. Very cool. You know, it's not often that I identify personally with a less than a centimeter long arthropod creature from 500 million <laughs> years ago. But when you described its potential brain as just a mess in the middle of the head. <laughs> same. Mood. <laughs> based? Is that a thing that they say on the internet? What? I, think, I don't know. I think based is a thing they say now. Ah. you showing me up. Like, you call my bluff. We are also from the Cambrian. <laughs> One more bit of news for this episode, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, I, <laughs> I have selected a recent news about Homo erectus and early human evolution. Oh, I see what you're doing there. See, that feels a bit 
fitting yeah. for the later episode title. All We're right, going to talk a lot about hominins and human <laughs> evolution. This research is new insights and possibly suggesting a somewhat of a rethink on how we understand the role of diet in early human evolution. Ooh. This is research by Andrew Barr et al. in the journal PNAS, and we will link to a news bit from James Ashworth in the National Natural History Museum of London. Homo erectus, you've probably heard of it. <laughs> Early, or earlier than us, member of the Homo genus, an ancestor of modern humans, commonly considered a milestone in human evolution. They show up just after two million years ago, and they have a lot of modern human-like features, including bigger bodies, bigger brains, more modern proportions of the body, smaller guts. Homo erectus is where we see a lot of very familiar things. So there's been a lot of research into why, why did those things show up then on the path to making us human. Typically, one of the major answers is that this might have been linked to diet, specifically a shift towards more meat eating. Yeah. This is something you may have heard, and we probably may even have mentioned it back in episode 18, that around this time it is thought humans were eating more meat, or human ancestors were eating more meat, and that led to the favorability of some of these features. Part of this is because of evidence at archaeological sites after Homo erectus shows up, the commonly accepted knowledge is that evidence of meat consumption becomes more common. Mm -hmm. And also, if you think about it, if you want it to make sense, it does. Smaller guts are often linked to meat eating, since meat is easier to digest. We don't need several chambers in our stomach for digesting meat. Yeah, you don't have to ferment it. <laughs> Bigger brains need more energy, which meat is very capable of providing. Body proportions of the humans at this point in evolution have been linked to potentially hunting strategies. So there's all this discussion and all this proposed evidence for a concept that the article referred to as the meat made us human <laughs> idea. <laughs> this study challenges that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Not totally, but it, it is a bit of a challenge. What they wanted to do is double check, does the evidence actually line up as well as we think it does? Is it true that meat consumption becomes more common after Homo erectus shows up? To test this, they looked at data for 59 archaeological sites across East Africa, ranging from 2.6 million years ago to 1.2 million years ago. So across this time period, before and after Homo erectus shows up. They looked at various evidences of carnivory, including the presence of bones of animals at the site, butchery marks, evidence uh, of humans eating the meat, things like that. And what they found is that higher evidence of carnivory, of meat eating in these people, is linked to more sampling of the sites. Oh. The sites that have been studied more have more of this evidence. So when they sorted the data and evened it out, they corrected for more sampling versus less sampling, what is the relative amount of evidence of meat-eating, they found that there isn't an increase in evidence for meat-eating across this time period. That, according to their data, what looked like an increase in evidence 
was just because we were doing a better job studying the sites after that time period yep. than before. This is why I it, it distressed the definition of bias earlier. Yes. This is a bias. It's not anyone's fault, but we have sampled certain sites better. And so we have better evidence there. And that led it to look like there was an increase in meat eating where it might just be that we weren't sampling the earlier stuff as well. Well, it's it's what often gets talked about when it comes to opinions on the Internet, for instance, of like, if you just scroll through the comment sections of stuff or the, uh, you know, I was going to say message boards to really solidify how Cambrian. Uh, but, you know, if you're scrolling through the, the articles being put out and the comments being put out and the, you know, react videos being put out, whatever it is, you could very well assume something about like a movie that's just come out or an actual real world event. And you could draw a conclusion of like, wow, yeah, everyone's pissed about this. Right. <laughs> everyone is super mad about this. It's you just look every comment. It's like, well, yeah, the people commenting right. are mad about this. You have a sampling bias. Yeah. The person who doesn't care doesn't care to comment. And you are not being nefarious in making that assumption. You're just missing the actual situation. I remember a similar discussion several years ago about the frequency of tornadoes and the idea that if you look at the data over time, tornadoes seem to become immensely more more common. But the reality is we just got better at detecting and recording tornadoes. Yeah. So it looks like there's an increase. But no, we, we only had so many stations or so many methods of detecting them for a while. And now we're better at it. Well, it's, uh, they came up with my kids because an eclipse happened you know, not too long ago here in North America, landed on some state somewhere. And the kids were all talking about it. I was like, well, actually, eclipses happen pretty regularly, usually over the ocean. Right. So no one talks about them. Because we have a sampling bias of where we live and yes. where we are available to look at the skies. So to us, <laughs> eclipses are this rare thing that only happens every... Well, no, it actually happens pretty regularly. Now, the authors stress that this does not rule out the hypothesis that meat was meat eating was a driver of some of these evolutionary changes but it does suggest that we need to do more sampling and we need to shore up our data a bit more we might be being misled yes by our biased data yeah this isn't saying no they they were not eating more meat for sure it's just that the way we were drawing that conclusion is based off of potentially a misinterpretation. Yes. And they point out that this might encourage us to consider other factors. Yep. If it wasn't that we were eating more meat, what else might have been changing? And they point out that there could have been other diet shifts. Maybe we switched to softer plant material or to more scavenging or different methods of preparing food, all of which could potentially have similar influences on human anatomy and human evolution yeah we could get nutritional benefits in a similar you know that would could have similar side effects without it just being meat yeah this is one of those cases where and i feel like more and more uh, when we talk about the news i'm trying to be careful about the latest study is not the final word no (laughs) on a thing these authors i i noticed it in the the press release are specific to say yeah we didn't just invalidate this whole hypothesis but 
this source of data might be a little shakier than we thought it was. And the, the upshot here is that the answer is go find more sites and go sample more sites better, which is always going to be an improvement. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of like when a bit of evidence in a court case gets brought into question, where it's actually that evidence is not reliable. Well, that doesn't mean the person's innocent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't invalidate all the rest of the evidence. We might go, okay, well then we'll take this out. But yeah, here's the bloody knife still. Right. Yeah. So we might go, okay, yeah, we need to sample before. Man, you know, a bloody knife would actually be a really <laughs> handy piece of evidence for this particular kind of study. <laughs> this is get, get some PIs. <laughs> yeah, but like if we start sampling beforehand, we might find out, no, yeah, actually it still does show an increase. Mm -hmm. Or we might find that it's something different going on. So as usual, and as with all of our uh, news that we discussed this episode, the answer is do more work. Yes. Everybody do more work. Maybe get robots to help you. Yes. Do do more work so that we can further this and so that you can make more news for us to report on. Yes. So we can do more work. So that we can do more work. <laughs> it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is great. Well, with the news out of the way, we are finally ready to move on to this episode's Darwin Day discussion. We will be discussing Mary Leakey and Lewis Leakey. After the break, we will be joined by special guest Meredith Johnson to talk all about these famous paleoanthropologists. Please stick around. Don't touch that dial. Cambrian. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> Hello, Meredith. Hello. Welcome. welcome. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> so as our listeners will know by this point, you are here to join us for this year's Darwin Day episode, where we are discussing the famous paleoanthropology couple, Mary and Louis Leakey. Yes. Before we get into that, before we start talking about our main subject, if you would please introduce yourself for our listeners. Sure. My name is Meredith Johnson. I'm the communications director for the Leakey Foundation, and I am the host and producer of their Origin Stories podcast, which is a show about human evolution. Yeah. Also, Origin Stories is the reason we knew about you, and that's how uh, we learned of you and your podcasting and ended up inviting you to join us. <laughs> that's so great. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Origin Stories. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and I, I recommend it often on this podcast. It's a good one. I appreciate that. <laughs> so to get into our main topic, we're going to go into lots of detail here in just a bit. But first, just very briefly, could you tell us who were the Leakeys and why are they exciting to talk about? Sure. Well, so Mary and Louis Leakey were archaeologists and paleoanthropologists who they spent their lives researching human origins, um, primarily in East Africa. And they're sometimes called like the founding family of paleoanthropology, because before them, almost nothing was known about the evolution of humans in East Africa. So the Leakeys really made tons of important discoveries, and they pretty much shaped the field of paleoanthropology. Their children, especially uh, Richard Leakey and his wife, Meve, and their daughter, Louise, they started sort of a, a family dynasty of paleoanthropologists in East Africa. 
Yeah, we're really excited to talk about them. And I'm sure that these are names that a lot of our listeners will recognize, even if they don't know very much about the mm -hmm. Leakies themselves. Yeah, that's true. That's one of the interesting things about them is that they became really world famous in a way that a lot of other scientists you know, didn't. Yeah. Well, we will talk about the Leaky Dynasty and we'll talk about the Leakies individually. We're going to talk about all this stuff. I'm very excited. But as is evident already, these are two people who are typically spoken of together. Uh, unlike the other people we've discussed on the podcast in similar episodes that are sort of each get their own episode. But these two are so often discussed together and named together. So as we get into the science, before we start discussing them individually, can you tell us a bit about what scientific work are they famous for doing together? Yeah, that's really true. They are always, almost always talked about in the same sentence. So they, they worked together for decades, and I would say they're most famous for the work that they did together in Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, uh, where they made, they, they worked literally for decades there together, and they made a lot of the most famous um, paleoanthropological discoveries there. Certainly. Could you tell us a bit more about Olduvai Gorge and the work they did there? Oh, yeah. So Olduvai Gorge is in the, the Rift Valley of Africa. It's a big, long gorge, kind of like a mini like a mini Grand Canyon, where you can see the layers of sediment going down back for about two million years. Um, and it's a really, really rich site. Lewis went in the early 1930s and began um, surveying. And they surveyed there for more than 20 years before they found their first fossil. So wow. I love the stories about Olduvai Gorge, especially because it kind of shows their extreme dedication. I think a lot of people would have would have given up, you know, but they persevered for a long time in kind of difficult conditions um, without a lot of money or support and without a lot of fossil finds for the first 20 years or so. so. Wow. And I would imagine, and please tell us the time frame we're talking about, but I would imagine this was at a time where there wasn't a lot of work being done in that part of the world like this. There really wasn't. Lewis was kind of the the first person, and that's part of why he's so famous. At the time, the scientific consensus, which mainly came from you know European and British scientists, was that human evolution, human origins, would be found in Asia, and then like probably England. They thought because mm -hmm. they were English, but... Um, <laughs> well, it's just, it seems like the logical conclusion, if you ask right. them. This is where all the best humans are. This must be where we started. <laughs> Obviously. But uh, Lewis was Kenyan, actually, um, born in Kenya. And he really strongly believed that human origins would be found in, in Africa, specifically East Africa. And Darwin thought that, too. But um, everyone else in the scientific community kind of thought he was you know, out of his mind for thinking that. Um, but he was dedicated to that idea and he knew he would find the evidence. He just had to, he had to look. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, you mentioned working for 20 years without finding much is dedication, but I guess it's, you know, if, if what you're dedicated to doing is changing science forever. Yeah. That's, that's not all that long a time. Yeah, really. That's true. 
And, you know, they were finding little things here and there. I mean, they were finding lots of stone tools. They were finding lots of fossil animals. They found like one hominin tooth. Um, but it wasn't until 1959 that they found their first big discovery, which was actually found by Mary. Okay. Can you, let, let's talk about that discovery. What did they find? So what they found is uh, it's known now at, well, it has a lot of names. The, <laughs> the, the nickname that it's kind of famous for is Nutcracker Man because of its huge jaws and teeth. So in 1959, I think it was July, um, Lewis wasn't feeling so good. So he stayed back in camp in bed and Mary went out as she did every day. She went out with her Dalmatians. She's kind of famous for um, her love of animals and all the, wow. the dogs she had. That's so, the second Mary we've discussed on this podcast who went fossil hunting with dogs. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. we, in episode 80, we talked about Mary Anning, who also went out with her dog to find fossils. That's so cool. I didn't know that about her. <laughs> yeah, Mary had, um, she had Dalmatians, she had horses, they had like pet hyraxes. <laughs> wow. Whoa. I didn't know that was a thing you could have as a pet. You can't. No. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Not anymore. They let them do it. Yeah. The leakies could have a high rise. <laughs> yeah. So 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 she went out and she saw like a little tooth. Well, not a little tooth, a big tooth poking out of the dirt. And she started to scrape it away. And she realized pretty soon that she found like exactly what they had been looking for for all these years. So she she left it there. It was kind of eroding up out of the ground. She left it there got in their, you know, her Land Rover with the dogs and went back to camp and woke up Lewis and was like, oh my gosh, I found it. I found, I found, she said, I found our boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Lewis uh, came back with her and they actually ended up kind of leaving it in the ground until they had someone to come and, and film it because they knew it was going to be a big deal. And they had a National Geographic team come and film the excavation. And what they found was really surprising even to them. It was a, it was a huge skull with really big, thick jaws and molars that were like four times the size of a modern human molar. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And it had a sagittal crest on the top like a gorilla. Nutcracker wow. Man is right. Yeah. yeah. So we we've talked before the sagittal crest that that ridge that runs along the top of the skull. We don't have it, unfortunately. But if you have a pet dog, you can often feel it on the top of their head, and that anchors jaw muscles. Mm -hmm. uh, and gorillas, yeah. If you ever look at a gorilla skull, they have this huge crest, and it's not like hyenas have a big one. Yep. Because uh, they're crunching bone. Gorillas have a big one for chewing on hard plants. So seeing that on a hominin, right in our human lineage. In conjunction with big molars, that's a surprisingly gorilla-like skull. Yeah. And it had a tiny little brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it kind of, you know, it, it was evidence for human evolution in East Africa, but it kind of wasn't what they were expecting because they had been finding lots and lots of stone tools and they were looking for the creature that made those tools and they were thinking it would be a lot more like us. Um, more in the homo lineage with a big brain maybe with you know not a sagittal crest and giant jaws and huge teeth so um, right. this was the discovery that really made them famous 
And this sounds like an Australopithecine. Yeah, it is. At the time <laughs> they called it, they called it Zinjanthropus, Zinjanthropus okay. boisei, which was named after the person who had provided them money for this year, that expedition, uh, Charles Boise. Makes sense. So it was called Zinjanthropus. It was nicknamed Zinge or Nutcracker Man. And then later on, it became um, Paranthropus, which is mm -hmm. kind of an Australopithecus, like a robust because of the big, huge bones. <laughs> we talked back in episode 18 about sort of the human evolutionary lineage mm. and how our genus sort of rose to prominence after this group, the Australopithecines, which included a lot of the famous Australopithecuses like Lucy and so on. But also these, I th yeah, they are, I've heard them called the robust Australopithecines, the, yeah. the nut cracking ones with <laughs> the big strong skulls. Yeah, it's cool. And so it was about what, 1.7 million years old, 1.75. Right, right. So this discovery sounds like this was sort of the beginning of what would become a very prolific life of more discoveries and excavations by the two of them. Definitely. They continued working together there until, you know, until Lewis passed away in 1972. And then Mary continued on after that, um, finding lots more interesting things at Olduvai Gorge and, and in other places in Africa. Very cool. Are there any other uh, discoveries or things that they are known for together having found or, or revealed before we talk about them individually? Yeah, I think the next one was, um, it was actually found by one of their sons just uh, the next year in 1960. Uh, Lewis had been looking for the, the maker of the tools. And like I said, he had been thinking he would find something that looked more like us. And their son, I uh, can't remember if it was, I think it was Jonathan, found um, this, a skull of a... Um, a homo, homo habilis. And it was even older, surprisingly, than the Zinchanthropus. And it was in the same, you know, it was also in Olduvai Gorge. I want to say it was two million years old, but I might have to look that up. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, that one also was a really huge discovery because it added another, another member to the homo family. Um, yeah one of the early ones and and that um homo habilis kind of still stands today a lot of the early discoveries have sort of like changed their name or mm -hmm. not sure you know if it's part of what species it's part of because at the time there were so few fossils to compare it to you know they had the south african fossils from the early you know from the 1920s and 30s but really, these were the the first uh, East African fossils. Very nice. And they were clearly making these discoveries. Were the two of them also publishing? Lewis was publishing more of that. I think I think Mary was publishing more in in the archaeology side, and Lewis would be would describe the fossils. Although Mary, because she was such a meticulous scientist, was you know, kind of putting them back together? That's a good question. But I know like Lewis is the one who's famous for, you know, writing the the nature articles and then for like taking going out on speaking tours. That was another way that they were a good scientific duo. Right. 
is that Lewis loved to have the spotlight and go and talk about things. You know, he was famous for his lecture tours and his National Geographic specials and things like that, where Mary just really preferred to be digging in the dirt and not talking to people. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) So together they sort of revealed this earlier stage in hominin evolution this this new location where we could study that information and i assume brought lots more attention to this particular region of the world lots more attention i mean it's kind of unusual for like for fossils especially strange you know strange ones to to become sort of household names but in the, in the 60s and 70s lewis and mary leakey were really world famous and and People knew the name Zinjanthropus, which is kind of hard to believe today. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, ancient humans and dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, those are the two groups that produce household names. Yep, I would agree. <laughs> so you've already started sort of hinting at the ways that they were different and that, you know, these were two separate individuals, right? They were each doing their own thing in their own way. So let's start looking at them uh, separately. Let's start with Mary. What was Mary like? As a scientist, Mary, I mean, I, I say, I would say that Mary is one of the great scientists of the 20th century. I think she's one of the most famous women in archaeology. And and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, She was meticulous. She was exacting. You know, she had a reputation for being like a no nonsense person with extreme (laughs) focus and dedication. And yeah, she's just I mean, when people talk about Mary Leakey, they say she she was meticulous. Um, She had kind of the perfect personality for doing this like long term field research. And she established a lot of the methodology that's still used today in this type of Stone Age archaeology. And she she made up the classification system for stone tools and she she found so many species of fossil animals. She just she's was a great scientist. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we can tell. That's great. Uh, you mentioned that she did a lot of the assembly work, that she was preparing the specimens. She did. And some of my favorite pictures um, that you can find of Mary Leakey show her like immense concentration as she's like trying to put back together these um, incredibly like smashed, you know, fossils. And she, I don't know, she's, she's great. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think like, I would have been really intimidated by her. And like, she had a reputation too, for being a little bit scary. (laughs) Sounds like a very serious kind of person. No nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, We, we know some preparators who are very, intense uh very good at it uh, very focused and yeah sometimes kind of intimidating uh-huh yeah and she she didn't mind having that reputation i think of being intimidating <laughs> so yeah come in handy she was kind of a a unique you know she was just like an unconventional person mm-hmm. who was really committed to to her work and to doing her thing <laughs> And I think she's made some of the most significant discoveries that have ever been made in human evolution because of her her dedication and her meticulous methodology. 
Yeah. So you mentioned that she obviously she was discovering things, uh, old things, millions of years old things, along with Lewis in those early days. But you also mentioned that she did more on the archaeology side. What are some discoveries that she made herself? In 1948, on an island in Kenya called Rasinga, Mary found the very first fossil ape ever found. Um, oh. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. It was an 18 million year old Miocene ape that she called Proconsul. She found this little skull, like nearly perfectly preserved in the volcanic ash in this island. And and it was just like a really astonishing find. Um, there, Yeah, there hadn't been anything found like that before. And so she called it Proconsul Africanus, which I learned was Proconsul was the name of a famous like performing chimpanzee at the time. That was uh, like in, I think in, in the UK, this like little chimp that would, they dressed it up and it would perform. Yeah. <laughs> oh, past fossil pop, pop culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's no longer called that. They have a new name for it. Oh, well. But most people still call it Proconsul. <laughs> and I, in uh, January 2020, I got to go to Rasinga and I got to like stand on that actual spot where she found Proconsul. So that was really special. Oh, very cool. That's pretty neat. Did yeah. you feel the connection, the, the sort of spiritual connection with Mary <laughs> being in that same spot? I did. And like, not just with Mary, but I think like with, it seems, sounds a little cheesy, but like with all of humanity and our ancient, you know, ape lineage. And it was really a powerful and cool experience to be there and stand in that very spot. And I got to find fossils too. So <laughs> <laughs> very cool. I, I absolutely get what you mean. Just, just from the, this conversation, because I, I do not know much, like I'm, here to learn a ton because I do not have a lot of background info about the leakies or their discoveries. I, I just know their reputation. And I've been having that moment off and on when you've de described like that they were the first to find like, yeah, that human evolution has its roots in Africa. It's like, that's a, that's like redefining the way you view humanity. Mm -hmm. Like that's not just, oh, that really re does rethink the, you know, how we got our starts. Like, no, no, that's, reshaping the way we view us as an entity on earth <laughs> and that yeah it is it really does have that universal connectedness sort of feel when you're looking at it from this type of perspective yeah and you know i think that uh it, it's it sounds a bit cheesy but i that totally makes sense i've definitely had moments every now and then you hold a fossil and it really sinks in the significance of yeah this is a bone from an animal that was 5 million years old or 105 million years old or whatever it is. And I think that that is accentuated even more when it is something related to us. Mm -hmm. When you can look at a skeleton and look at a bone and imagine the, the almost the exact same bone in your own body. Yeah, it's really powerful. So I'm glad that you feel the same way. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember I got to visit many years ago. I got to visit. Uh, the KPG boundary right out in Colorado. This is the boundary that separates the Cretaceous from the Cenozoic. And it is the line of sediment that marks the asteroid impact that ended the Cretaceous. And it's just, it's just a little line of dirt. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And there, but there is something really special about being able to see it 
and being sort of in the presence of something so significant. And I can only imagine what it's like to for a similar experience, but directly significant for our own personal lineage evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And the the scientist that I was with, he's like, oh, okay, well, here's the tree and here's where Mary was standing. And, you know, this is exactly where it was. He, he no, worked there all the time. So, but even he was like, "This is a special place. This this spot." See, now I'm picturing like a, a Neil Armstrong style footprint <laughs> of Mary <laughs> there that you can put your foot in. Right. <laughs> totally. I feel like there definitely should be some kind of marker there. Mm-hmm. But the hill is like still eroding out, and so that's one of the cool things about that site in Rosinga. Is like it's a Miocene site where there had been a volcano volcanic explosion somewhere around 18 million years ago so and there were lots of different kinds of animals there and they were all buried in the ash so like even somebody like me who is not a scientist and not trained and not never was able to go looking for fossils before like you can just sort of walk around and find for me they just were random fragments but the fossil uh, finders and the scientists that I was there with were like, oh, okay, well, this is, you know, this is part of a bat's wing and this is mm-hmm. a crocodile and this is a mouse tooth. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Very cool. So the the more ancient stuff uh, we typically think of as being in the paleoanthropology realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned that Mary did a lot of archaeology work. Does that mean younger stuff, more much more closer to our time? Yeah, so Mary was also very um, fascinated with stone tools and, you know, older ones and newer ones because, and I think we'll talk a little bit later about her kind of origins in science, but she was British and grew up in England and she was an artist. Um, like She um, drew a lot of stone tools. She found a lot of stone tools that were younger, you know, in, in England. Um, and so that was always part of her her work in archaeology, um, but she really definitely spanned the the time, you know the the time millions of years. I feel like because she was such a skilled and meticulous archaeologist, you know she could identify what I, like. Sh- I'm sure she would be fine in any time period. <laughs> <laughs> I've met people like that. Yes, and she also was really. Um, wrote books about and found a lot of um, ancient art, like prehistoric rock art in Africa. Oh, wow. I'm not totally sure what the ages were, but they were definitely, um, you know, younger than the fossils and stone tools she was finding. Yeah. So was she, I mean, I I know the names for paleoanthropology, and that may very well be my own personal bias as a paleontologist. <laughs> uh, were Was she also making major game-changing discoveries in the archaeology realm as well? I think so. I mean, I would say her stone tool classification methods, that that counts as archaeology, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I think that's really interesting because so often we celebrate scientists for their discoveries or for their hypotheses, right? We talked about Darwin and Wallace uh, for their theorizing, but a a, a new methodology for studying something, right? A classification scheme. I mean, goodness, what is science if not just a, a series of classification mm-hmm. schemes? 
So for someone to in, to to introduce a new way of understanding and identifying something as important as stone tools, that's a real significant contribution. Yeah. And I, you know, her archaeological field methods too, uh, ways of excavating in, in East Africa, which is kind of like different than some other contexts, those methods are still used today. So yeah, definitely major contributions. And then like to top all of that, I would say, I mean, maybe not to top, but just to add to her <laughs> impact um, in the 19, late 1970s, after Lewis had passed away and Mary was continuing to work, she found the Lytoli footprints um, in oh, Lytoli. Right. Yeah, which was the first fossil evidence, the first of its kind fossil evidence of upright walking in our lineage. And, you know, track fossilized tracks of all kinds of animals. It was yeah. a huge discovery. That possibly the most famous footprints on Earth. Yes. So, you know, to exclude Neil Armstrong's footprint, as yeah, you previously well, yeah. mentioned. Because it is not on Earth. So on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We mentioned, I mean, we've mentioned Laetoli back in episode 18. We mentioned it in the last episode, 131, because it's a volcanic deposit. It's, it's, these are ash deposits that all these footprints are in. A very, very significant discovery. Yeah. And it, at the time it was discovered, that was the, it was the first of its kind. So, and it's still the oldest fossil footprint evidence. 3.6 million years old. So much older than those first discoveries of bones that you were talking about. Yeah. So even it's it's very fun to think that they discovered a new skull and some new hominin material that was amazing because not only of its significance for evolution, but because of its age. And then here she is making yet another discovery, another, you know, two million years older than that first one. Uh, and also sort of reshaping our understanding of those early ancestors of ours. Definitely. And I, the the individuals that made the tracks were Australopithecines, so which were previously previously known in South Africa, not East Africa. So Right. Uh, one that's a a cool example of finding a behavior older than you had been finding, you know, the, the, those other specimens. So now it's like, oh, well, wow, if things were walking upright this far back, that can reframe everything. And that's a that's an exciting find. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's like one of those big questions in paleoanthropology. It was like, you know, did walking come first or big brains or tools mm -hmm. or like how did the whole story unfold? And and the Lytoli footprints really, really changed the understanding of, of the order of operations, I guess how we came to be this weird species that we are now yeah, these aliens yes <laughs> large-headed small-mouthed aliens <laughs> well i'm glad that uh, you had the chance to point those out because i think that often those kinds of discoveries proconsul and the latoli footprints uh, it's easy for those kinds of things to be ascribed to the leakies Right. The leakies contributed this and they discovered this. So it's really nice to be able to tease apart the work that Mary did, the discoveries that she made uh, herself, that she deserves the credit. Now, certainly she was working with other people and with her husband. Yeah. Uh, but people can get lost. Names can get lost in a group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say, you know, a lot of the all of these discoveries and the way science is done is like it's a team sport. And 
the Leakies worked for a long, long time with this very skilled group of uh, African scientists. They were known as the hominid gang collectively, but they were <laughs> extremely skilled and like just incredible fossil finders uh, who worked with both Leakies and some went on to work with Richard Leakey and other teams all across East Africa making many of the most significant human fossil discoveries or hominin fossil discoveries. So definitely Fantastic. don't want to leave them out. And, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the Lytoli the find was also one of those kind of unexpected, you know, uh, it was a find where they, they weren't looking for the footprints, but um, they were at the end of a long day and they were playing, what I have read is that they were playing catch or dodgeball <laughs> with like elephant poop out there. <laughs> right. As one does. As one does. And then somebody bent down to like pick it up the poop and throw it. And <laughs> there was a footprint. Um, wow. So what a way to find fossils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you found hear the, that field researchers? Just found this, this, couple of footprints under this big poop if you haven't yeah. made a, a fundamentally important you know paradigm shifting discovery maybe you aren't throwing enough poop around that the big site that's true yeah you gotta take take breaks man <laughs> you, know? you know pause to take to smell the environment yeah. <laughs> well we've talked a bit about mary as a scientist in her own right shall we talk about lewis yes so tell us about Lewis. What was he like as a scientist? What sort of discoveries did he make himself? Okay. So if Lewis, I mean, if Mary, let's see, if Mary was like an exacting, you know, meticulous scientist, Lewis was more free ranging, I would say, you know, he was a very, <laughs> he had a lot of interests and he followed them all. I mean, they were all tied to human origins in Africa, but Lewis has been described as excitable and a showman and, you know, a great communicator and a, a big thinker and kind of like visionary type of guy who he, he did so many things. He was an expert in um, animal behavior, in ornithology. He was a museum curator. He was a zoologist and an archaeologist and a paleoanthropologist and an anatomist. He kind of did it all. And then on top of that, he loved to talk about it. So <laughs> he was really famous for his ability to, to tell a story and to get people engaged and interested in human evolution. Uh, we should have had him on the podcast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I always thought Lewis would definitely have a podcast, for sure. <laughs> and it would be pretty amazing, I think. You know, I think it would really, it would be very wide ranging and he would definitely be the star of the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's such a valuable thing to have, especially for someone who is doing unprecedented work and is introducing new discoveries and new ideas to the scientific world. You hear a, a lot of the names in science history that kind of rise to fame are the ones who are really good at speaking and sharing, the ones who sound good and look good on a radio program yep. or on TV or something. Yeah, and he was definitely that. He 
toured everywhere giving lectures. He spent a lot of his time and energy doing that, um, despite, you know, having uh, ill health towards the end of his life. He would take these really long, kind of grueling lecture tours because he really cared about it. And he really wanted to share the story of humanity with everyone. And he also knew that it was important to raise money and get support for this kind of work, which was not easy at the time, you know, especially if you're doing something that people that takes a long time that you might go for 20 years without finding anything <laughs> and that nobody thinks is probably true. You know, if people people are thinking you're not going to find anything in East Africa, um, it's kind of hard to get get the support. So getting money for the science was was definitely part of of what he was doing. And it sounds like Kind of like you said before, the two of them made a good pair. I can definitely imagine a, one being very meticulous and very exacting and very technical uh, oriented with someone else to kind of be the spokesperson and getting the attention and getting the information out there. That sounds like a winning combo. I was I was just thinking that same thing of it really does make sense why they worked so well together because those are both really critical. You know, like you were just saying... If you're doing all this in research, you need to do it right. So being a good, meticulous, detail-oriented scientist is important because you're going to you're going to have to convince people of your research a lot of the time if it's new and if it's not what people are expecting. But also, if it's not something that people you know that has support, you need to get support for it outside the scientific community, not just from other scientists, but funding and interest and dialogues going. Uh, so that's really a, that's, that's a killer combination. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of times these days, scientists are expected to be able to do it all, to do both things. And mm -hmm. it just doesn't seem fair to me. <laughs> <laughs> everybody, everybody needs both a Mary and a Lewis. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This is it's like that me inside of you. There are two leakies. <laughs> one is an exacting scientist, and one is a, a, a out, outspoken showman. <laughs> and they are married. <laughs> and they are married, and they are extremely famous. Uh, so we talked about obviously some. Uh, Mary made a lot of discoveries that are her claim to fame. What about Lewis? What What are the discoveries that make Lewis stand out? What did he do? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, Lewis's um, claims to fame kind of come from that work that he and Mary did together. So the Zinjanthropus, the Homo habilis, um, he didn't really have a lot of like fossil finds that happened without Mary, but mm -hmm. he did a lot of the describing of the fossils. He worked with other scientists. He um, ran collections at the museum. I think he any of his individual finds that happened before Mary um, were kind of overpowered by the work that they did together. Um, that really, you know, and I, th I think his main contribution, well, okay, he has several main contributions, but one of them is just the, the dedication to the idea and the perseverance with the African origins of, of humanity to like, he really um, went all in and tried to find that evidence that that he knew was there that changed the story of how people understood where we came from. Fantastic. Yeah. And we're glad that he did. 
Yes. Yeah. And then I think another thing, and, and maybe I'll talk about this a little bit later if we, you know, when we talk about his, the legacy of the Leakies, but he, supporting other scientists was another huge thing that he did. He had so many interests and he had so many theories and ideas that he knew he couldn't do them all himself. So one of the most powerful and important things that he did was help other scientists get started. Um, most famously, I would say probably Jane Goodall. So. Right. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Yep. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, this is going to be fun to talk about that later. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we're get, get more into that. In a I bit. love Jane Goodall. <laughs> yeah, these these two are really exciting to get to talk about because, and this is true of, you know, the, the, the reason we talk about people on the podcast is often because of their major contributions, uh, but really people who changed the field. Uh, and in this case, in many different ways and from many different avenues. Uh, and this is all these two are also exciting because these are relatively recent. You know, these are the youngest people in terms of time that we've dedicated entire episodes to. You know, these were only uh, got you know, these discoveries you're talking about were only several decades ago. Yeah, that's kind of one of the cool and exciting things about paleoanthropology is that it's such a young science. You know, it's just in the past century, really, that it. Uh, has become what it is, you know, and maybe the past half century. I don't know. Yeah, that, that there are people working today who studied with these two and mm -hmm. who worked alongside these two. And that, you know, we have recordings and videos and more modern representative evidence of their work. Yeah. I, I feel like it's it often is easy to forget how new a, a field it is. Because it nowadays it's it's so widely discussed and so often discussed that it's easy to forget that it's like this isn't this wasn't like one of the things the earliest paleontologists and people were discussing. Right. This is this is a fairly recent addition, which is awesome. Yeah, they were discussing they were making these discoveries and changing our understanding of early human evolution around the same time that plate tectonics was coming into mm -hmm. prominence and around the same time that. Dinosaur paleontologists were starting to think that maybe some dinosaurs were actually smart and active and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fast and all that stuff. <laughs> this was yeah. a, this was a time period of uh, dramatic revolutions in yeah. paleontology, anthropology, geology. It still blows my mind how like recent the understanding of plate tectonics is. That's just crazy to me. Right? <laughs> yeah, that we discussed that in episode one twenty two, and I I have come across textbooks pre-plate tectonics that were sort of I, i've read descriptions trying to explain mountains and such with outdated ideas about geology and around that same time you would have had these sort of i'll call them pre-leaky textbooks <laughs> like before we had this understanding of the african uh, the, the role of africa and african ecosystems in our own evolution yeah cool <laughs> Well, we're going to get started talking about sort of the bigger picture and the lives and legacy of the Leakies. Is there anything else about their science that we should mention before we move on? Oh, I think we covered it pretty well. Well, next up, we'll move on from the, the pure science discussion about the two of them and start talking about who they were as people and how other ways that they have really changed the world around them. Uh, first, we're going to take a short musical break and then we'll be back. Great.
so up until now, we've been talking mostly about the sort of professional lives of Mary and Louis Leakey. But let's take a, you know, take a step back and look at them, you know, less as just scientists and more as people, as human beings. What were their early lives like? How did they get involved in science? They both have really interesting early lives. I learned a lot about Mary's by reading her autobiography called Disclosing the Past. And it made me, I don't know, made me love her even more. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Mary uh, was born in England. Her father was a, a landscape painter. Uh, made his living that way. Her name was Mary Douglas Nichol before she was Mary Leakey. And she traveled around with her parents um, from an early age. She, she didn't go to school. So she traveled around Europe and England and France with her dad as he was painting landscapes. And she really early on became interested in um, the prehistoric sites that they were seeing. So they visited you know, like ancient um, villages, and they would vin visit um, painted caves in France. And her father would introduce her to, you know, like the local priest or whatever that was working on archaeological sites back in the, you know, the 1920s, when she was a kid, or 10s, I guess. And they would let Mary like dig through the piles of stuff that they were not you know, that they didn't think was important. And so she was always fascinated with the past from a really young age. And she was also um, an artistic kid. She So she was uh, drawing and um, kind of doing her own thing. She was able to, to do her own thing and follow her own interests as a, as a young kid. Um, and then when she was 13 years old, uh, her father passed away and her mom went back to London and sent Mary to school, to like a, a convent school. And it didn't go well. <laughs> it, didn't, <laughs> it didn't go well. She was not into it. So she ended up getting kicked out of school uh, twice. <laughs> she got kicked. Yeah. She got nice. kicked out one, the first time <laughs> for refusing to read poetry. And then the second time for purposefully um, setting off an explosion. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, so Mary was not just a quiet, meticulous <laughs> scientist type. She was also a troublemaker. Yeah. She just was very independent and uh, wanted to do her own thing. She did not apparently respond to the structure of school <laughs> <laughs> of a convent school at that yeah i'm sure that's very encouraging for a lot of our listeners especially uh aspiring scientists mm -hmm. to hear yeah if you're the kid that doesn't like the structure of school you can still be a successful scientist you can blow something up you can yeah you can set off explosions <laughs> and then go on to become a famous yeah. scientist just blow something up you'll never have to go back to school um, that, that'll do it <laughs> we do not condone this message no please do not uh, this is not uh, advice <laughs> yeah no not life advice but you know it worked for her and <laughs> she never finished high school which is a surprising thing, I think, when you look at somebody like Mary Leakey, who contributed so much to science. So she, yeah, she never finished high school. She audited some classes as a teenager in archaeology. And then she started to like write letters to archaeologists, primarily female archaeologists in England. And she 
asked to volunteer at their sites. And so she ended up doing that and famously uh, started working with Dorothy Liddell, um, one of the early British female archaeologists who was working in Devon. And Mary worked with her for three years and Dorothy mentored her. And so that's where she built her skills in archaeology and in scientific illustration. So drawing everything that was found there. It was like kind of the perfect thing for her. Yeah. And a very valuable skill for a scientist to have, especially mm -hmm. in a field like this. Totally. You know, and Mary also like uh, she learned how to fly glider planes. She... Uh, she smoked a lot. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> she smoked cigars and uh, she drank whiskey. You know, she was she was a independent young woman. Yeah, this is a cool person. Very cool. And, we and also don't condone smoking cigars. No, that is not what made her cool. Or drinking a no. lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea of this young woman sort of with her... She's leaning against her glider plane with a cigar, an explosion totally. in the background. Well, she's, got, she's got a bit of a, like, Mariana Jones <laughs> vibe going, which I kind of love. Mm -hmm. It's also really neat to note that she did not have a traditional schooling. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, you know, not to say, ah, school, who needs it? You know, I, I tutor for a living, so I, I right. shouldn't say that. <laughs> but that if you're background is not a traditional schooling that doesn't mean you are barred from these fields you know that she she got into it in a in a roundabout kind of way you know that mm -hmm. she did not take the usual route into archaeology and anthropology but just pursued her interest into it kind of perpendicularly yeah which is which is very interesting and very i think uh, encouraging yeah, I love stories, you know, that show an alternative path is possible. Yes. Yeah. And and then on the other hand, it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like she had a lot of opportunity, uh, that she had the privilege of being able to not follow the path mm -hmm. that was needed. It sounds like her parents gave her a lot of opportunity to travel and things like that. Uh, and that's another theme that has come up when we talk about people who become famous, especially earlier scientists. This came up with Darwin and it came up with Napcha in our previous episodes where some, a lot of the time that early foundation for getting into the science comes from the privilege of not having to get a job yep. or yep. not, you know, Darwin didn't work and Napcha didn't work until they were eventually forced to do so. I, although I don't remember if Darwin ever was forced to do so. <laughs> uh, so there is that, this combination of, your early conditions, your privileges that you have early on, and then the qualities of just you know, finding your own path and, and carving your own way into the place where you're interested. Uh, there's there's a reason so many of the, the like truly ancient scholars are aristocrats. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can afford to have a library. Yeah. And I think Mary's you know, having her father be an artist and having them have this unconventional life of traveling around and living sort of outside the normal British structure for young women in that era was really a privilege that Mary, Mary took advantage of. You know, she really carved her own path in a way. Yeah. And how about Lewis? What was he doing in these early years? What did he blow up? 
<laughs> How many schools did he get kicked out? Yeah, come on. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting, and it? it's a way that they're similar. But so Lewis was older than Mary. He was born in 1903 in Kenya. His parents were missionaries. So he always identified as a Kenyan person, uh, born, raised, lived his whole life in Kenya. And uh, he did not go to school either until he was 16. Yeah, he just kind of lived his life. He was from an early age really interested in nature and animals, especially birds. He collected everything and tried to learn about it. And all his friends and playmates were from the Kikuyu tribe where he lived. And he learned a lot from from them. He learned about observing nature and, you know, all this kind of stuff that really paid off for him later with patience and skills of observation. And um, he wanted to be an ornithologist at first because he was just so into birds. Um, They said in his biography, it says that he built a house for himself when he was like nine or 10. (laughs) like a you know a traditional house and that's kind of like the thing that kukuyu boys would do too at around that age so he built a house and then he just like filled it with birds eggs and rocks and you know (laughs) all kinds of um natural things that he found and then when he was around the age of 12 someone gave him a book about prehistoric england and he said that kind of like changed changed the course of his life and he was he had been finding stone tools and things around so he knew you know from a young age that there was a prehistoric record there in Kenya but there just wasn't any research about it mm-hmm. so he was able to live like that until he was 16 and they sent him to England to to go to school and kind of like Mary he he did not like it (laughs) he struggled he his family was very poor so compared to the other kids in his school he didn't have much and nobody kind of understood his experiences of living you know living the way he did living in Kenya Um, he spoke three languages he spoke English French and he spoke Kikuyu and you know, he didn't end up fitting in or making friends very easily. And then he got um, injured. He had a really bad head injury and had to leave school. So, you know, he had kind of like setbacks and ups and downs. He did eventually go to university where he studied language and then he studied archaeology. And then after he finished school, he started, um, he went on an expedition with actually a dinosaur paleontologist who died in the middle of the expedition and Lewis had to take over. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) And that's one way to get it, to become a leader in the field. Yeah, field promotion, quite literally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he tried to raise some money and to raise some support for beginning to look for human origins in Africa. He started doing that in about 1931. Wow. So that is, that's another interesting origin story because on the one hand, it has a lot of some of the really typical stuff. You know, how many scientists have we heard who got started as kids just collecting things and keeping their own collections? 
you said that he received a book which changed his life and it you know i that's a very very familiar story mm-hmm. for scientists for paleontologists and anthropologists but then on the other hand you know being the outsider in his, some of his schooling and mm-hmm. having a very unique experience growing up and not being wealthy so this is another one of those very unusual unexpected i think for somebody of his level of fame kinds of paths into the field yeah for sure i think they both have such interesting stories and i can see why they you know were attracted to each other when they met Mm -hmm. and when did that happen so that happened at a dinner party held by an archaeologist in i think it was in 1930 mary was 20 years old lewis this became you know, quite a scandal for him and his career. But Lewis was married at the time that he met Mary. And he, you know, they were seated next to each other at the dinner party, and they hit it off. And he learned that she was an illustrator, quite accomplished scientific illustrator who was practiced in drawing archaeological finds. And so he asked her to illustrate a book that he was working on. And she said yes. And then they sort of struck up a correspondence And not long after that, she came to Africa and they started working together. And he, uh, his wife, his, his wife, Frida was, um, was pregnant at the time. It's really, I don't like this part about Lewis. (laughs) I I think every person that we've talked about on the podcast as a historical figure has had that none of, they're all humans. Yep. None of them are perfect. And that's always an important thing to to mention. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Lewis had flaw, you know. (laughs) Had flaws. <laughs> and this was, yeah, so this was a big, a big scandal, actually, at the time. Um, so he left his wife, he married Mary, he had little relationship with the child, you know, his child. So yeah. And then they set off to Olduvai Gorge and started their work together there. And, you know, kind of the rest is history. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a big problem um with like his cambridge he went to cambridge university so it was like all the the cambridge the the establishment you know the the scientific establishment was really scandalized by this and i think you know it was a scandal for sure yeah yeah it it worked out great for the field of archaeology and paleoanthropology but probably not great for his ex-wife and his child and the people involved it, it, it is admirable to emulate them as scientists <laughs> yeah if not necessarily as individuals at all times <laughs> yep. we had this discussion I, I think the 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 first and maybe most prominent time we had this kind of discussion was in our darwin episode mm-hmm. episode 28 about a, a person who yeah great scientist lots to to admire but also a human being who was not perfect and who had uh, some unfortunate qualities and, you know, said some stuff that I probably shouldn't have said, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really important to look at all all the sides of historic figures like this and not just like put them up on a big pedestal. So, okay. Yeah, it's very yeah. easy to get caught up in the uh, they blew stuff up at school. And smoked cigars. They smoked cigars and they grew up in Kenya and all the things that can be like, oh, that's awesome. And skip over that. Yeah, they also broke up a marriage and (laughs) left a a mother and child alone. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that it, it is very important to recognize those things, especially since it is so 
easy and unfortunately common for people to get a pass. Yes. Uh, because you are a great scientist and because you are really famous, maybe we overlook all of the not great and sometimes extremely awful things that people are doing, which we shouldn't do. You know, we want to treat people as the whole person that they are. Oh, it's, there's even that mentality sometimes that eccentricity is required for right. some of these great right. You got to have a couple of skeletons, metaphorical yeah. skeletons in your closet. You have to be a little kooky and a little <laughs> out there and maybe do a little bit of shady or not great stuff to achieve these great things. And I've seen uh, a couple of articles that are like, yeah, especially people who work in the entertainment industry where that mentality is very common. Mm-hmm. They're like, just to let you know, there are plenty of not jerks that are just as brilliant as all the jerks that you're defending. <laughs> Right. You don't need to be like S- scientists. Don't need to be Rick Sanchez. Yes. and Greg House. You can be a you know normal person. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have to aim for the extreme just all to that, do cool stuff. All that said, I do like the thought of Lewis and Mary sitting in a dinner party and bonding over their love of anthropology and archaeology and their hatred for school. It's <laughs> <laughs> been like, yeah, I dropped out. Oh yeah, me too. And then they, you know, riffing about dislikes of school together <laughs> i like ancient people i like ancient people i don't like school i don't like school <laughs> exactly and then you know what they ended up doing together was huge and required those kind of i think unconventional personalities and like tenacious nature to keep looking and looking and looking and um kind of go again against the conventional ideas of where you would find evidence for human evolution so yeah. yeah. Well, while, while we're you know continuing this story, uh, so presumably at some point after this, they had a family. And you mentioned early on that one of the things, when we talk about the Leakies, we're not just commonly talking about Mary and Lewis. There are a bunch of other Leakies. There's a whole Leaky dynasty. So this episode is not about all of the Leakies, but uh, if you would briefly tell us about the extended Leaky family. Yeah, so they had several children together. The most famous, I would say, is Richard Leakey, who recently passed away um, this January. And Richard followed in his parents' footsteps, even though he didn't want to at first. (laughs) He also didn't really go to school and didn't want to, he didn't want to be a paleoanthropologist because he grew up on the dig sites and, you know, he really wanted to carve his own path. Um, and at first, he wanted to be a tour operator, and oh, yeah, because nice. yeah, he loved, right. yeah, <laughs> he loved Kenya and he loved nature, and he, you know, knew a lot, so he wanted to do that. Um, but ended up kind of getting pulled pulled back in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> couldn't stay away, and he ended up making incredible discoveries. One of them, kind of right before Lewis passed away. He found a, another a Homo habilis fossil that was incredible and really helped solidify the work that Lewis and Mary had been doing um, in in East Africa. And Lewis was able to actually kind of see and hold that that fossil just um, right before he died. So, oh, wow. so that was really good. And then he went on, you know, Richard went on to discover Turkana Boy. His team discovered. Turkana boy, which is another really famous ancient fossil. And then he had a long career in um, conservation. He ran the national parks in Kenya. He's been museum director. He has been instrumental in protecting uh, elephants from extinction. You know, he had a long and storied 
career. So Wow. I think that, so you mentioned that he passed away uh, yes. as of this recording very recently. Yes. Very. So January 2021. Uh, this is another one, kind of like the last episode. We ended up talking about volcanoes the week after an yep. enormous famous volcanic eruption. We ha- we coincidentally ended up doing a Leakey's episode very shortly after the passing of Richard Leakey. And I saw a lot of headlines and they weren't news stories about, you know, Richard Leakey, son of famous scientists. They were stories about him and his contributions and his scientific work. Yeah, and I think that he would have liked it that way. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even though, you know, he was a leaky and really important, that was really important to his identity, but also uh, making his own contributions was was important. And then there were even more leakies in the dynasty, more scientific leakies, weren't there? Yes, yes. Meave Leakey, who's Richard's wife, and their daughter, Louise Leakey, they're incredible scientists on their own, and they're continuing the work. Um, they established... The Turkana Basin, I mean, Richard established the Turkana Basin Institute, which Meave and Louise both are invo- heavily involved in. The, um, they have made discoveries of their own. They're, they're both amazing scientists who will continue to leave a legacy and find new and amazing things. That's great. It's funny because they left a lineage of scientists. You know, that, which doesn't always happen, right? There are, Darwin has descendants, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't think that a, his family is particularly famous for being, you know, evolution. Some of them, I believe. But the the Leakeys is sort of this scientific royal family, in a sense. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's like those, those actor families. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, these are the Hemsworths of anthropology. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So this uh, leads very nicely into a, discuss- a topic that we brought up earlier in that the Leakies are famous not uh, for their impact. They are famous for the legacy they've left behind. And part of that legacy is the, the, the human legacy. Like they actually did make people. Yes. <laughs> like, then, you know, went on to be scientists. Like the original meaning of legacy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as you hinted at before, another part of their legacy uh, and, and the people that they influenced were other scientists that they weren't related to. Uh, can you talk a bit about who were some of the other famous scientists they worked with or helped to train or get involved? Yeah. So the most famous of them um, is Jane Goodall. Yay! So, <laughs> yeah. So Lewis really, you know, he had a lot of big ideas. And one of those ideas was that one of the best ways that you can understand what ancient humans were like is by studying the great apes that are living today in the wild. And Jane Goodall, you know, you know her story. I'm sure that she always had a dream um, to live in the wild with animals, to study animals. And someone told her, you really have to go to Kenya and meet Louis Leakey. And so she did, you know, she saved her money. She traveled to Kenya. She, she just called him at the museum and he answered and he said, come on in. And they, you know, she worked for him for a little bit as a secretary and all the while they're talking about their ideas about animals and nature and evolution. And he said, well, you know, there are these chimpanzees and I've been looking for someone to go and study them um, in Gombe in Tanzania. And I think you're the one to do it, you know? So he, um, really launched her. He raised the money. He 
got the permit, you know, he set the whole thing up and supported her. He was her mentor through her early career. Um, and then he did the same thing for Diane Fossey with gorillas and Brute Galdicus with orangutans. And so really starting these like giants of primatology in their careers who then, you know, went on to inspire generations of scientists of their own and really kind of changed the face of science in that way so that more women are primatologists now than, mm-hmm. than men, I think. That's so cool. Well, it's fun to think, we mentioned this earlier, that these are relatively recent people. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. these people lived and passed away only relatively recently. So you can get people like Jane Goodall, who is still around and is still working and is still inspiring people. And I remember I, I, this, I, I just remembered that uh, I took a class. I sat in on a class as an undergraduate with Alan Walker. Oh, wow. A very famous primatologist, uh, anthropologist. And I had heard about him. He was at Penn State. And I think this was his last semester teaching. And so I got to sit in on this primatology class that he was teaching. And I was so, I was like, oh my God, this guy is a big deal. And this guy would, this guy, this guy, this, this extremely famous and prodigious scientist. Yeah, some dude. Uh, It was so funny because he was clearly very knowledgeable and very experienced. And then every now and then he would talk about a discovery and he would reference his friend, Lewis. Mm -hmm. And he'd go, yes, you know, I was having dinner with my friends, the leakies. Uh, which simultaneously for me as a, as an undergrad, I was like, wow, this, <laughs> this guy, that's, that's really cool. But also that, yeah, they were, this is recent. This yes. is recent stuff. There are people who worked directly with them still active today. Well, that, that was part of the reason I, I, I geeked out when you mentioned Jane Goodall is she showed up to my undergrad. And so I got to see her talk and take a picture with her and everything. So I fan out a little bit whenever she comes up uh, and she's just such a cool person. Like she was just so much fun to listen to talk. Yeah. Uh, she's just, she's just got so much sass about anything she has to say. And I love it. And, but one of the things she was talking about and the way she was talking actually have a lot of parallels now with the things you've been saying about the leakies. You know, she talked about how when she researched the chimpanzees, she had to, talk about them in a way that would be accepted by people who did not view them as anything other than very base animals with no, you know, human equivalent behaviors at all. So she had to talk in very roundabout ways because she was also tackling a subject that not every, most people did not agree with her on. So it makes sense that she allied with someone who was also, you know, spearheading things that not the rest of the scientific community was not uh, necessarily behind them on. Yeah. And I mean, I think he could see the, the what Jane Goodall had that was so special. And he did not care that she hadn't been to university. You know, he, he, he did not care that she was not a scientist with a PhD. But he saw that she was a capable and dedicated and observant and patient person who had the makings of what he thought someone would need to start a long-term study of of chimpanzees in the wild and do something that no no one had done before. So I like that about the leaky story too. It's just like the unconventional approach and the mm-hmm. not, you know, just recognizing people for who they are and helping them on their path to what they want to do. Yeah. 
expanding what it means and what is expected of a scientist. Yeah. And now the, you know, the whole field, uh, field primatology is, is a thing, I think, because of that. <laughs> I mean, I know there were people doing other studies of primates in the wild before, but this kind of like long-term ongoing great ape research was, hadn't been done. So it was really, really quite a contribution in its own right, you know, even though it was Jane out there doing it. But it was, you know, Lewis who helped get her started. And she still acknowledges Lewis as her mentor. And and then, you know, that's part of why the Leakey Foundation exists today was because one of the things that Lewis was doing was going around doing these talks, trying to raise money for not just his work and Mary's work, but for Jane Goodall and for Diane Fossey. Like he was trying and um, scientists doing excavations in Israel and other parts of Africa trying to put together the whole big picture and he knew he couldn't just do it. You know, it would take generations of scientists all over the world. So he didn't have the money himself. So (laughs) a bunch of people got together and started the nonprofit Leakey Foundation to fund this kind of science. And that is what I was going to ask about next is (laughs) on speaking of the legacy of that, that they've left in science and research. uh, You mentioned earlier that you work for the Leakey Foundation. I do. Yeah. So I'm the communications director for the Leakey Foundation, which was started in 1968. So just a few years before Lewis died. And it was started by a group of his supporters in Southern California originally who would come to his lectures and get really fascinated about human evolution. And he would, you know, spin his tails and inspire them. And they pooled their money together and tried to get other people to give money and started this nonprofit with a mission to to fund research and then also to talk about it because, you know, that was yeah. part of what Lewis thought was so important. So that's what we're still doing today. So what sort of projects does the Leakey Foundation do these days? Oh, so many. So these days we fund research and we fund um, paleoanthropological research and we fund primatology, field primatology. We fund ancient DNA research. We fund, you know, all these kinds of new things that make up the science of human origins. So, but all of our work has to be related to the study of human origins. And then we have educational programs like a lecture series, obviously, because of Lewis, <laughs> Lewis Leakey mm-hmm. and our podcast and uh, educational resources and things like that. We give about 60 grants a year, a lot of them to PhD students to do their dissertation uh, research, which is wonderful. And I love it. And it's just like such an interesting collection of of new grants every year. So really adding to this big global, you know, story of where we came from. And the other important thing that we do that's also, I think, tied to Lewis's and Mary's legacy is um, our Baldwin Fellowship Program, which was started in 1978 to support African scientists primarily. So to give money to scientists from the places where the fossils and the primates are so that they can... um, build up scientific capacity in their countries and be the leaders in the field in their countries. And so that's been going, yeah, since 1978. And if you look at, you know, the directors of the museums in Kenya and Ethiopia and Tanzania and all of those people um, have come through the Leakey Foundation's Baldwin Fellowship Program. So that's I really, that's really cool. That's fantastic. Well, and I think that is such a, it's something that we haven't, I don't think, talked very much about in our previous People episodes, 
the role of big deal, famous, prolific scientists in supporting and encouraging others. Yes. And in this case, you know, the creation of an entire organization whose job is to do just that. Uh, and that's so important. You know, you can only mentor so many people directly mm-hmm. in your lifetime. So having something set up like this where that can continue uh, into the future is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And it's really a joy to be able to work for an organization like that and to just kind of see, you know, I've been with the foundation for eight years and to just like every year see all the new young scientists and all the new discoveries that come from this like not huge funding. It's it's, you know, kind of small grants in the big picture. We're not NSF or anything, but but these little bits of money make a big difference in our understanding of human origins and just in the past 10 years, you can think of how many new species have been found and how many new yeah. fossil sites and all of this interesting primate behavior research. It's really fun to be part of it. I bet. And please uh, talk a little bit about origin stories. Sure. So um, like I said at the beginning, I host and produce the Leaky Foundation's Origin Stories podcast, which is like a storytelling show about human evolution. So We cover kind of all kinds of topics uh, related to human evolution. So we do have, you know, we have an episode about Jane Goodall. We just recently did one um, with Brute Galdicus, who studies orangutans. And that was really fun to be able to interview her and share her story. I think she's one of the, the lesser known of the, you know, the three big figures in primatology. I'll have to listen to that one because orangutans are my favorite. I was just going to say, <laughs> if if anything's going to get Will to start binge listening to origin stories, yeah. that you have an episode about Jane Goodall and then one there about orangutans. <laughs> All right, you're selling me. Well, and yeah. origin oh stories gosh. is a really excellent. I have I have plugged it several times on this podcast. Um, Meredith has already done the entire episode with us, so <laughs> this isn't just me, you know, trying to butter up Meredith. I think Meredith that you do a great job with origin stories. Uh, and, and you do it's a really excellent source for up-to-date broad information about different topics in human evolution and anthropology and related subjects thank you so much that's really nice to hear it's <laughs> it's a labor of love that show <laughs> yeah we know what that feels like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so if we have any listeners who still haven't listened to origin stories go listen to origins finish this episode and then go listen to origin <laughs> stories <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before that uh, it's always a a real joy for us to have other podcasters on our show because it's a bit, you know, it's a crossover and those are always fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is something that we share with our fellow science communicators is this opportunity and and the, the, the joy that it brings us and the fun that we have to just get the science out there and talk about this these fascinating subjects yeah and i especially love you know that we can nerd out together about fossils (laughs) you know it's it's (laughs) so much fun i've had a blast (laughs) and you do a lot so your podcast is much more interview focused than ours is so i think basically every episode of your podcast is either a lecture or you're you're interviewing scientists and getting those that input And that's always been one of my personal favorite things about science communication is just meeting a whole variety of people and learning about a variety of different projects and different topics. It really, 
you you don't end up being an expert in any of them. Yeah. But boy, do you get exposed to all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, it's so much fun. Interviewing scientists is my favorite. I yeah. really love it. So it was. this is the first time that I've been on a podcast. So that's not my own podcast. So this <laughs> has been a lot of fun to sort of like be on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, and it's been great. We, we've had a great time talking with you. Absolutely. Uh, but we're not done yet. I wanted to ask you. So you've talked about what the Leaky Foundation does. You talked about origin stories. What else do you do in your role at the foundation? Well, we're a really small organization, so like we have an international impact, but we're a tiny staff. So there's, <laughs> so I anything that's with communications that's not our public lecture program, that's what I do. So, so in addition to the podcast, you know, I do the website and the newsletter and the social media and the board relations and yeah, meetings, <laughs> lots of meetings. <laughs> yeah well a lot <laughs> well great I, I'll, we appreciate it and i'm sure all those people who are supported by the foundation uh greatly appreciate the work that you're putting in oh uh, thank you yeah i just got to do one of my favorite things which was like write the blog post about the new new grants like so all the people who just got Ooh. the new grants it's a lot of fun to like email back and forth with them and get their picture and like put it all together and share their project and what they're working on. It's a lot of fun. Well, excellent. So uh, at the end of every episode, after every episode, we have a blog post. And so we will absolutely include links to the Leaky Foundation website. We'll include links to origin stories. And you've mentioned to us off mic that you have some photos and perhaps even audio and video clips that you might be able to share to supplement the leaky discussion. So check out the blog post for those kinds of things. That'll be really fun to see. One more question that I want to ask you, and we know this is touching on a bunch of things we've discussed already, but to sort of wrap up our discussion about the leakies, when we reached out to you to join us on the podcast to talk about them, you were very excited. Uh, and you have been very excited uh, during the whole recording uh, to talk about the leakies. What, do, in your opinion, why do you think it is important to talk about them and to share their story and to remember the this particular pair of people? That's such a good question. And I think it's really important to talk about them and their contributions, like just because they were so major and they were so inspiring and they did have this legacy and this impact that carries on, like not just in their family and not just in, you know, the organization that I work for, but just in changing the face of science, of like who's doing the science. I think their dedication is super inspiring. And like when I learned about their different pathways to who they became, I, I just think that's a powerful story that is really important to share. So I was really excited to have the opportunity to come on here and to hear that like some of your listeners had asked to learn about the leakies and that you thought of me. So that made me happy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that this is a, a, a fun one also because this is one of those, you know, this is a name you hear a lot. If, if you are looking into paleontology, paleoanthropology, archaeology, leaky is a name you will see a lot. It's like when you look at the early stuff uh, in paleontology, and there's like the f six names that just keep showing up over yep. and over and over. You know, you see Owen, 
and all these other names that you can easily just not really know very much. Mm-hmm. You know, Darwin is different. Darwin is Darwin. Darwin's like a superstar of, of science. But it's great to get to sort of explore who were the people behind these names that I'm sure our listeners have heard uh, many, many times. Well, it, it's like I can attest to that because I had heard of the Leakies. Uh, but if you had asked me who they were, I don't know that I would have been able to pull out. Uh, it was a husband and wife. <laughs> like, I, I assumed it was more than one person since you put an S on the end. Right. Uh, <laughs> John Leakey's. Yes. But <laughs> I don't. I didn't actually know who the Leakey's were. I, I knew what they were associated with. I knew why they were important and why they were discussed. But I did not have, like, a list of names in my head. I just, my brain went, yeah, no, the Leakey's and moving on. Well, and I think for me, I, I was somewhat familiar with the Leakies, but I didn't. This this discussion has really helped me to understand the different people involved, mm-hmm. right? I knew Lewis's name and I knew Mary's name, but I didn't really know much about them individually. So this is a, this has been a really great opportunity for us to learn, uh, which is why we invite on guests who know more than we do about stuff. Yeah, this is as much for us as it is for the listeners. <laughs> uh, and as we now near the end of our discussion, I can also say, uh, tell our listeners, I've been geeking out about this episode <laughs> for a while. I've, I was so excited to have Meredith join us. Uh, you, I, like I said, I'm a big fan of origin stories. And when we got the request to do an episode about the Leakies, I had that sort of, oh man, I wonder, I wonder if I could get Meredith Johnson from origin stories to join us. How cool would that be? It, and yeah, it, that is very true. Speaking as his roommate, absolutely, that's I what's was, been happening. I was very excited. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us and teaching us and our listeners all about the Leakies. Thank you so much for inviting me and for having me on the show. It's been a blast. <laughs> now, before we officially wrap everything up, we do have one last thing to get to. At the end of every episode of our podcast, we like to answer a patron question. Yeah. One of the rewards that you can get for supporting us on Patreon is the opportunity to submit questions for us to answer here on the podcast. And since we have a guest, Meredith, we'd like to invite you uh, to as much as you want to answer this question along with us. This is a fun one, uh, that sort of a discussion prompt question. This is from Corbin, who asks... It seems to me that we mostly address fossil animals by their genus name only. Tyrannosaurus rex is an exception, but we usually talk about Triceratops or Smilodon, and not Triceratops horridus or Smilodon fatalis. Is there some reason that everyone seems to use the genus name instead of the full Latin binomial name? This is a great question, and it's a really good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. every species name has two parts, yes. a genus and species, Tyrannosaurus, Rex, Canis, Lupus, Smilodon, Fatalis, and so on. And we do often just do the genus name, especially with things like dinosaurs, yep. right? Spinosaurus and Stegosaurus. I bet most people couldn't tell you what the species names of those are. But I thought that this would be an interesting episode to bring that up because not only is T-Rex an exception to that, but a lot of ancient hominins are an exception mm-hmm. to that. Right? We refer to Australopithecus afarensis and Homo sapiens and Homo habilis and Homo erectus and things like that. So I'll turn the, 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 the question first to you, Meredith. Do you have any thoughts about sort of the pros and cons of the full binomial name? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I mean, in paleoanthropology, we sometimes totally mix it up and we'll just say Neanderthal. Which, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A common I mean, name. 
Yeah. Or, yeah, call it by a nickname like Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, I mean, I guess, do they do that in dinosaurs too? Sometimes dinosaur, you will get specimens yes. that have names like Sue. Mm-hmm. Sue is Sue. the famous T-Rex. Um, and oftentimes we will use genus names outside of the technical discussion. Yeah. Right. If you're talking to a, a scientist who specifically researches triceratopses, they will commonly use the, the species names, of course, to d- distinguish species. But yeah, in public parlance, you know, mm-hmm. there are very few full binomial names that are household names or even that we would commonly use on the podcast. Yes. Well, and I think something sometimes what happens, especially with dinosaurs, is that whilst a single species, you know, famous species may be part of a wide group of similar dinosaurs, uh, it may not be part of a wide genus you know, so like stegosaurs are mm-hmm. wide and common, but and I don't know how many other stegosaurus species species there are. Like I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's a situation where if you're talking about stegosaurus, you probably are talking about that species because it's the one in stegosaurus. And even if you're not, the different stegosaurus species are probably going to be similar yes. enough that the difference isn't going to matter to somebody. You know, who who isn't an expert in dinosaurs or who isn't looking for those distinctions, as opposed to something like Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo sapiens. Yep. The whole reason you'd ever be talking about those, really, in, in, in even scientific circles or not, is to distinguish them from our own species. Yeah. I mean, and maybe that's the key is like we care more <laughs> when it's us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that distinction between homo naledi and homo sapiens you know is is important because it's a whole different thing that's yep. extinct now and we're still here we, yeah. we care about that nuance in that case i think that really it comes down to the nuance only matters so many times yeah. that yeah you can just say spinosaurus you can just say dinosuchus and you don't have to remember the other half of the name and you're always getting basically the same point across you're yeah. getting across what you need well, and uh, I think there's also something to be said about fame level of yes. like, yeah, if you say Tyrannosaurus, even if you don't say Rex, we know which one you're talking about. <laughs> like, no one's going to be like, well, could you specify? Yeah, no, if I say Triceratops, everyone already knows which specific species of dinosaur I mean, mm-hmm. because what if I'm ta- unless I'm talking about it, like you said, in a research situation, if I'm talking about Triceratops. It, it is very unlikely that I'm just happen to be mentioning one of the not horridous species. Well, there are other common and popular species of Triceratops. I would say that I think the difference between the species doesn't really matter Yeah, to most discussions. I, I, triceratops looks like Triceratops. I can't think of a situation where I've seen an example used outside of a research situation that wasn't talking about that one. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I've yeah. seen tri- Triceratops prorsus and stuff like that. Yeah. But I get your point, yeah. especially with something like T-Rex uh, and especially with something like Spinosaurus or Dinosuchus or Quetzalcoatlus even. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a small Quetzalcoatlus, yep. the giant pterosaur, but you know, we're not talking about that one. That's kind of like uh, with the anaconda. Like when people talk about anacondas, they're talking about the green anaconda. Right. <laughs> even though the yellow anaconda <laughs> exists and is notably smaller, is yep. not one of the biggest snakes <laughs> I think there's also something to be said for the ease and, uh, if I may, awesomeness of a name. Homo sapiens is pretty easy to remember, mm-hmm. right? Homo erectus is pretty easy. Like, that's basically just two normal English words, you know. 
that's easy to remember, as opposed to something like Paranthropus boisei, which is kind of <laughs> weird and obscure. Tyrannosaurus Rex might be the coolest binomial <laughs> name ever devised. And it's easy, right? Tyrannosaurus Rex, it's just one extra syllable you got to throw on there. And it's an awesome syllable. It's yep. got an X in it and it means king. That's a very cool, easy to remember name. And I think that really helps. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Australopithecus afarensis, <laughs> not so much. Right. So Lucy, that's why we so go Lucy. with Lucy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Corbin. That's a great question. A really great question. I loved it. <laughs> and thank you, Meredith, for helping us to answer it. Uh, this episode has been fantastic. We hope that our listeners have learned a lot and have enjoyed listening. We certainly have had a great time. Like I said, there will be a blog post, as always, after the episode with links and photos so people who want to dive deeper can look for more information. Uh, Meredith, before we wrap up, if people want to find you, how would they do that? Oh, people can find and follow the Leaky Foundation on Twitter, on Instagram and Facebook. And also um, Origin Stories Podcast is on Twitter at Origins Podcast. Great. And we'll link to all that as well in the blog post. And also some of that will link in the episode description. So you don't even have to go to the blog post. Just <laughs> scroll down to the episode description. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, we've, it's, it was very exciting to have you here. We've learned quite a bit. To all of our listeners, if you want to hear about other historical people, if you want to hear more about these historical people, if you want to hear more about other leakies, or if you want to hear more about other anthropologists, any other topics, as always, feel free to send us your suggestions and requests on the social medias, the emails, all of the typical stuff. Thank you to our listeners who have requested this and other episode topics that we've covered. Thank you, as always, to our patrons, to all of our supporters. Thank you to everyone who listens to and supports origin stories while we're at it. As usual, we release episodes every fortnight, so stay tuned for another episode coming up soon. Meredith, this is the part where normally we kind of ramble until the <laughs> outro music. So one last time, a big thanks to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and we'll see everybody next time. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.